0: So we are in 1 Peter, and last week we got all the way through 1 Peter 2.12, I believe. I'm going to back up to 2.9 for a minute. One of the things that I've mentioned every time, and I will briefly mention again, is Peter is writing to Hebrews. Paul writes to Gentiles, Peter writes to Hebrews and in verse 9 you are chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are god's people once you had not received mercy now you have received mercy i had an hour today where i was sitting around with nothing to do so i read hosea and The quote that I just read, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, is out of Hosea. And Hosea is specifically pointed at Israel, not Judah. It was written before the Assyrian exile, when the Assyrians came down and took out the northern kingdom, led by Ephraim. Gomer, who is Hosea's prostitute wife has three children. First one is Jezreel, the second one is Lo-ruama and the third one is Lo-ami. Jezreel is the name of the valley that goes east to west north of the Carmel mountains. It is in Israel, not in Judah. And then Lo-ruama means without mercy. And lo-ami means not a people. So this is performance art on the part of God where he has the prophet marry a prostitute. And they have three children and they get these names. And he says that at some point he's going to bring them back. And he's going to remarry them. And they are once again going to be his people. And that is going to happen in the Valley of Jezreel. Why am I saying all this? I said at the beginning that this is written to Hebrews specifically in exile, and we'll read some more about that tonight. I had speculated that there's sort of two possibilities there. Possibility number one is the geographical area toward which Peter's letter is written is the area through which the northern kingdom was dragged by the Assyrians when they were taken into exile. So possibility number one is they are still identifiable in some sense and so he's writing to those people. Possibility number two is he had the Babylonian exile which took the Jews out of Israel to Babylon and they are scattered all over that area Up until this day. So possibility number two is that's who he was writing to. But as I read the Hosea quote here that Peter is referencing, it is entirely about Israel and not at all about Judah. So my speculation at this point is somewhat strengthened that I think the audience here is the ten lost tribes, not Judah, who's also been scattered through the same area. I mean, certainly, you're going to have both of them there, with the audiences, the Ten Lost Tribes. So down to verse 11 now in First Peter 2:11, "Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." So what he's telling these exiles, since they are Hebrews, they have a tradition of the scriptures, Torah, they are in exile, and they are living among Gentiles. And what he's telling them here and in the rest of chapter 2 here is while you're in exile, behave. Don't give your Gentile neighbors any cause to revile God by your behavior. One of the things we concluded with last time in verse 12 is keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So this speaks as if it is a foregone conclusion that the Gentiles are going to speak against them as evildoers. That's the sense of the passage. So if the Gentiles are speaking against them as evildoers, what I think Peter is talking about here is classic anti-Semitism. One of the things that I said last time, and I will repeat, is today, Ashkenazi Jews are one standard deviation higher in intelligence than are Europeans in general the example I gave you, if you gave a standardized IQ test to European Americans, the average would be between 100 and 105. You gave the same test to Ashkenazi Jews, the average would be about 115. And that's not controversial. It's well documented. So what you have then are a people who is separate and maintains their separation and their identity. And that people has got some strange customs to include for example the dietary laws what do you mean you won't eat the pork chops kind of thing so you have this group of people that is identifiable as a people and is more intelligent and more successful than the surrounding population the temptation then is to attribute that to all sorts of nefarious things and over the centuries it has been attributed to everything. So wherever they go, they run into this anti-Semitism but it's based on envy because not only are they slightly more intelligent, they also hang together which is perfectly fine and they're more successful as a group, not all individuals, but as a group. And so the temptation then is to attribute that to selling their souls to the devil, to all sorts of nefarious things, and you wind up having pogroms, expulsions, all that kind of stuff. And that's been the history of Hebrews in the diaspora ever since there was a diaspora. So what Peter is talking about here is that's going to happen to you. You need to make sure that you don't give it any fuel so in that sense as we now come down to verse 13 be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good for this is the will of God that by doing good he should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, in light of what I just said, that is not the same as the Romans 13 passage, where Paul is urging something very similar. What this is, is you guys are a minority living among Gentiles. You've been put out into those places in order to carry the word of God out there. In other words, these are messianic believers. So the idea is they're supposed to be spreading the gospel. They are, of course, carrying the books with them, Torah and the Tanakh, because as these Gentiles come into the kingdom of God, they are going to need education. That means that they're going to rub up against the synagogues because the synagogues is where the books are. So what Peter is saying here is, as that happens, make sure that you conduct yourself in a way that's a credit to God. And oh, by the way, as a practical matter, as a minority among other people, you don't want to incite envy, and you don't want to have mobs coming through and burning down your synagogues and running you out of town on railroad cars to Auschwitz. So this is not as many people interpret Paul in Romans, where you're supposed to be really good because the civil authority has been appointed by God and so forth. This is practical advice to a minority people who sticks out like a sore thumb and is, as a group, somewhat more successful than average. Because what that's going to do is incite envy, and you don't want to give them any excuse for that. Now... That doesn't work long term, because long term, as I say, every place that the Jews have gotten any significant presence, Spain, England, Portugal, Germany, Russia, all of these places at some time or another have had people rise up and attack the Jews because they are Jews. But what Peter is trying to do here is get them to make sure that they don't add any fuel to that fire verse 18 servants be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust for this is a gracious thing when mindful of god one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of god Paul says something similar, the idea that as believers, if you happen to have been born a slave, be a good one. Says that in several places. Peter seems to be saying the same thing. And I don't know whether this is a continuation of what I just said about anti-Semitism or is a gear shift where he's now talking about the duty of believers to present a good witness to everybody could be either way. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This feels more like Paul. Remember when we were in Colossians several weeks ago. One of the things that Paul said in Colossians is that the suffering that he was enduring for the sake of the gospel filled up the suffering that was lacking in Christ. And I said, I didn't understand that. Still not sure I do. I'm not saying that I do. But one of the commentaries that Ken sent me said something to the effect that Yeshua bore all of our iniquities and all of our diseases. That's true. It says so in Isaiah. And the commentary then said, he did it past, present, and future. So the fact is that he bore the iniquities of people not yet born, and he took the diseases on of people not yet born. Therefore, what Paul was saying, according to this commentary, is that the sufferings that Paul was undergoing were paid for in advance by Yeshua, and now he was just going through the actual... Execution of it. It's a commentary. I didn't understand the passage. Still not sure I understand the passage. But in this case, Peter seems to be saying much the same thing as I was just describing in Paul. And the idea all throughout the scriptures is the world is a tough and difficult place. You are going to suffer. The fact that you're in the kingdom of God is not going to spare you suffering. And in fact, some cases it may bring suffering upon you that you weren't looking for. So he's confirming, if you will, what everybody else says about being in the kingdom of God. It doesn't spare you any suffering, and it may in fact gather you some suffering that you wouldn't otherwise have gotten. And this business about slaves or servants, the idea is... If you're going to be punished, as seems to be the lot of all humanity, make sure you're not punished for doing evil, because then you doubly have no reason to complain. If you are punished, make sure that it is an unjust punishment, and then God will take care of it. Let's go to the end of the chapter here. So it's talking about Yeshua. In verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The sheep metaphor also all through Paul, all through the New Testament. Metaphor actually in the New Testament switches from shepherds to fishermen, but the sheep metaphor doesn't go away. He talks above here um, back in chapter 1 verse 13 therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua Messiah as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance but as he has called you who is holy you also be holy in all your conduct you be holy because I'm holy is straight out of the Torah. He's talking to Hebrews, but he could be talking to Jews who were part of the nation Judah, or he could be talking to Hebrews who were part of the nation Israel. And in that case, their ignorance would be different. So if he's talking to former members of Judah, which would have been, at that time, rabbinic Jews, what he's talking about is the stuff that Yeshua was talking about whenever he got into a tangle with the Pharisees or the temple authorities. And the big talking point there, the big problem there, of course, was the Oral Torah, where Judaism had added a whole bunch of stuff to Moses and treated it as if it were scripture. So their former ignorance in that case would be following the Oral Torah, if they were Hebrews of the nation Israel diaspora by the Assyrians, they got sent into exile because of idolatry, idol worship. So they living among Gentiles, having been thrown into the world for idol worship, their ignorance may in fact be they've sort of blended into paganism. Just no idea. They're just sort of covering all the bases. My point is as we're down in the end of chapter two, where he says in verse 25, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what I'm suggesting to you is this ignorance that he's talking about up in chapter one is the thing that has caused them to stray. And now after all of this, He's saying that as an identifiable minority and as servants of Christ, you need to behave because instead of being lost in your ignorance, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. He starts back up in chapter 1 talking about their former state of ignorance before they got the gospel whether that was the ignorance of rabbinic Judaism or the ignorance of whatever happened to the nation Israel, they were still out of the way of the kingdom of God. And one of the things that happened in Hosea that I led off with is Hosea said, I am going to sand you off flat and send you into exile and I am going to divorce you you are going to become a non-people, Loa me, and I'm not going to have mercy on you. And then it, later in Hosea, he says, in the future, I will bring you back and you will be my people again. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying here is in Peter, by the action of the gospel, those people have been brought back and are again a people and are now identifiable as a people of God again Therefore, they have an obligation to behave for that reason, but they also have an obligation to behave just for self-preservation. Onward to chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay, let's camp out there for a minute. Like it or not, the Bible has a hierarchy, and the hierarchy is God, fathers or husbands, wives, children, and that rankles people, especially today but in fact, that's the way God set it up. I'm going to segue off into current events. All of these riots and stuff that are going on because of Black Lives Matter, there are a great many single college-educated young women in that movement, and they are angry. They're just mattered than wet hands, excuse the metaphor. And the reason for that is, back in the 50s and 60s, young people were sent off to college because that's where young men and young women of the same social class could meet and get married. My dear wife went to a Catholic women's college and it was built right across the street from a Catholic men's college. So the idea there, you sent your kid off to college to get an education, of course, but also to find a mate of the same social class. What's happened in the United States in the last 20 years is men have been run out of colleges. So college right now, the last time I checked, which was about 10 or 15 years ago, was over 60% female. Because young men have been told them that you guys are potential rapists and you're oppressors and all that kind of stuff, so guys said, heck with that, I'll go do something else. what you have is this cohort of upper middle class young women who don't have anybody to marry. And in our society, the way the United States is set up, men will marry down, women don't. So a young man looking for a wife will very often marry a young woman of a lower social standing than his or a lower educational standing. That's fairly common. For a young woman who has been college educated, she is looking for a college educated young man, and she's not interested in a plumber or a carpenter or anybody like that, because it's not in the same social class. That's just the way we are. I'm just telling you how we are. So what you wind up with is a cohort of young women who have no prospects of marriage. And they're angry, but they don't know why. By the way, the same thing happened after World War II. In World War II, you have young men that died on the battlefield, lots of them. And so after the war, there was a cohort of young women, and there weren't men for them. And you had the Gloria Steinems and the Germaine Greers of the world who were not getting married, had no prospect of getting married, and they launched the first wave feminism this wave of feminist anger, if you will, is being launched for much the same reason. That you have a cohort of women who has basically no hope of forming families. And as I said, they don't attribute their anger to that, but it's the root of their anger because it's rooted in human nature and biology. What Peter is saying here is form a stable family and have your family set up in the order that God set it up. And that is a good thing. Now, notice what it says here. The words are really important. I mean, they're scriptures, right? Let's pick it up, verse 1, 3-1. One. Likewise, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Notice the word respectful. Respectful. Notice it doesn't say anything about loving your husband. And if you read the same advice in Paul, what Paul will say is women respect your husbands. Husbands love your wives. And the reason for that is men operate on the basis of respect. Basically, whenever I see another man, I respect him until he shows me he can't be respected. That's the basis on which men operate women on the other hand operate on the basis of love so it's a natural thing for a woman to love the man she's attached to she doesn't have to work to do that because that's her nature similarly it's a natural thing for a man to respect the woman he has married he doesn't have to work to do that the problem is she doesn't need i mean she does need respect but the thing that she really needs is love and the thing he really needs is respect so what Men and women try to do in the natural is treat the other one as they want to be treated. So a man would respect his wife because that's what he wants himself. I want to be respected, so I'll respect her. A woman loves her husband because that's what she wants, and she says, Well, of course I'm going to love him. That's what I want. I will give him what is important to me, which is a wonderful instinct, but it's completely wrong. And again, don't get me wrong, husbands should respect their wives and wives should love their husbands. I'm not suggesting that that's not something that's necessary. It is. But what isn't instinctive is for a man to express love to his wife or a woman to express respect to her husband. And so what the scripture says, both Peter and Paul, this is the way it works, or this is the way it has to be if it's going to work. One of the things about our culture today is we have this cultural meme of the stupid father and the stupid husband? That's exactly wrong. I can't tell you the number of commercials where you have this smart-ass woman saying, well, of course you don't, and then explaining things. It's just like fingernails on a blackboard, because it shows a lack of respect. Since women make so many of the buying decisions, the advertisers are aiming at women. And a woman would say, well, I love the big lug, but you can't hang a wallboard panel or whatever. And so what we have in our culture is problems starting from right here in peter or the same advice in paul do with that whatever you like oh and don't let your adorning be external braiding of hair that is not saying don't look nice and one of the things again in our culture today is since among young women there is such fierce competition For young men, what you wind up having is young women concentrating on their sexual attractiveness to the exclusion of learning all of the other things that make a woman charming. They figure if we can get him into bed, we're going to get him, and that isn't right. So you see these spring break things where the young ladies are competing with themselves to see how little they can wear and how lewd they can act as opposed to acting in a way that a Proverbs 31 woman would act. Gentle in spirit, good conversationalist, able to cook and do house, able to manage children, all those kinds of things are not what's being focused on right now. In fact, it's regarded in many cases as being beneath the dignity of a college-educated young woman, which is foolishness on steroids. And what it is, is a recipe for what we have right now. Single-parent households run by women with no man in this picture. I have read Emily Post from cover to cover. In fact, when I was in college, one of the courses we were required to take was etiquette. And we studied from one of those books. We were expected to learn it. How do you treat a young lady? You dance with her, you put your hand this way so you don't sweat up her back. Just all sorts of little things like that. And there are all sorts of etiquette customs from that era that I didn't understand. I just learned them and did it. This I gotta learn this is the way I gotta behave, so that's the way I behave. I have since discovered that a lot of them are biblical. For example, a man never offers to shake a woman's hand. If a hand is to be shaken, she offers her hand, and then of course a gentleman will take it. But he never walks up and extends his hand to her, and that goes clear back to the laws of Nita which are clean and unclean at the time of the month. A man and a woman would not touch each other during that time, and so this whole etiquette thing, if you don't offer your hand to a woman, I mean, she may decide not to shake your hand because she thinks you look like a slug and never wants to see you again, or she may, for other reasons, not shake your hand. That's none of your business, but she decides, not you. So yeah, there's all sorts of stuff like that that goes back to biblical times, and there's reasons for it. So anyway, where were we? So the idea of a woman looking attractive is not the problem here. The problem is depending on looking attractive as opposed to all of the other virtues of femininity. So we're saying don't let your adorning be external. In other words, don't depend entirely on braiding your hair, wearing of jewelry, and so forth. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So it isn't saying don't try and look nice. It's saying don't depend on that. Cultivate the internal part, all of the things that make a woman of quality. And then once you have built a woman of quality, hanging gold earrings on it is cool. But if all you got is the gold earrings, you've missed the boat. That's what he's saying. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husband. As Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So again, a woman of courage, respectful. We're talking Hebrews here, children of Sarah. The reason I'm making a point of what I'm saying here is it's my belief that this is addressed to Hebrews. And Hebrews have a different role in the world than Gentiles. Both are in the kingdom of God. Both are saved. Both make it past the lake of fire, all that kind of stuff. But Israel has a different calling and a different role than does the church. One of the questions I have here on the chat stream is... Even though this book is written to the Hebrews, can the church also claim to be God's royal priesthood, a special people, etc.? And my answer to that is no, they're not. They are members of the kingdom, but they're also members of the nations. And as I read both the Torah and the Tanakh and Revelation, what I see is throughout that entire span, Hebrews remain distinct from Gentiles, doesn't mean that God doesn't love Gentiles, doesn't mean that Gentiles are gonna cook in hell or anything like that, it means that Israel has a special place in his heart. The reason I'm making this point is becoming implies that it could be anybody whereas the way mine is parsed is you are a physical descendant of Sarah but as when Yeshua dukes it out with the Pharisees, he could look at you and say, yeah, you may be a physical descendant, but you're not a child of Sarah. So that's the sense I'm looking at it in. The lady who is out there in Cyberland said, if the book of Hebrews is written only, capital O, capital N, capital L, capital Y, for Hebrews, what is the takeaway for Christians, Gentiles, and what should we get out of this book? Everything and very much. Just like we are studying Peter, and we, I hope, or at least I am, am learning a great deal from reading Peter, the thing about both Hebrews and Peter is you have to read it in the context of it is addressed to somebody who knows scripture. So there are things that are just assumed in the audience in both of those books that Paul has to explain explicitly because he's writing to an audience that is not Hebrew. Take, for example, here where Peter is talking about the relationship between husbands and wives, even though it is written to Hebrews, that advice is applicable to all humanity. So if you go to the book of Hebrews, for example, where he's talking about faith, he's talking about faith in the context of the heroes of the Tanakh who are not Gentiles. But the principles of faith that are being elucidated in that book are universal. So, yes, take away from Peter and Hebrews both. There's tremendous amount of useful stuff for Gentiles in both of those books. You just need to understand who it's addressed to. And so when he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and so forth, he's talking to Hebrews. He's not talking to the Gentiles. When he's talking about relationship between husband and wife and suffering or disobedience and all those kinds, that's universal stuff. Down to verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Ding, 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 ding. Paul says something different. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Peter is saying, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman since they are heirs with you. And the reason for that is so that your prayers may not be hindered. And I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when my prayers seem to hit the ceiling and bounce. And the idea here is if you are not one flesh with your wife, you being the lead in the family and praying as the quote unquote priest in the family your prayers are going to be hindered because your family is not in order the one flesh is not whole this is by the way very jewish it's also in the tanakh the idea that you need to have your relationship with your wife and your children, in order, so that your prayers will be heard. This is aimed at a family. And in the Jewish culture, the fam you know, the big deal, people form families early on and they're supported by the community and so forth. And the idea here is this is the ideal relationship between a man and a woman. But the idea of young people just sort of going out on their own to spring break or to bars and all that kind of stuff and picking each other up and going off and doing what young people do is relatively new. In fact, the idea of romantic love as the basis for marriage is very new. The idea used to be that parents would arrange marriages Because the parents knew their children and knew what would likely succeed and not. And marriages were ways to build a family, to build a dynasty. My favorite quip is every young girl wants to be a princess. But the downside of being a princess is your brother may sell you off to the king of Poland in order to purchase peace in Silesia. That goes with the territory of being a princess. But the girls who want to be princesses don't see that side of the story. All they see is the fairy dresses and the crown. But there's a downside to being a princess. But the point is, that's how marriages used to be almost universally contracted. And in fact, in great art, opera and so forth, of the late 18th and 19th centuries, the idea of romantic love was very often presented as the prelude to tragedy. So, for example, Romeo and Juliet, Tristan and Isolde. (laughs) As they say, opera is always the story of a tenor and a soprano who want to make love and a baritone who's preventing it. The, The point here is, in art, it used to be that romantic couplings were almost universally a prelude to tragedy, because the cultural idea was these two young kids have got nothing going for them but hormones and they don't understand the wider context of family relationship. Romeo and Juliet these two young kids that are just full of hormones and so forth don't fully appreciate that their two families are mortal enemies and what it winds up is in murder and both of them dead. So the idea of romantic love and you just sort of turn your young people loose to bump into each other in the corral is very new and it doesn't work very well let's go ahead and break here we'll pick it up at verse 8 next time